0: Nighttime on Still Waters. This is NB five zero six eight one two narrow casting into the night from somewhere on Britain's waterways. It's summertime. And as the song goes, the living is easy. The sun is warm and the air is sweet. Come and join me in the cool of the night with a good book or two. While we're away, instead of the normal Nighttime on Still Waters program, For a couple of weeks we'll be spending a little time together, enjoying some readings. The stern doors are open to the night, coffee pot is still warm, and the biscuit barrel is close by. Make yourself comfortable, and we'll begin. Last week we started with two pieces of writing that reflected the canals at their heyday. The first was John Hassell's Tour of the Grand Junction, and the, the second one was Hollingshead's Odd Journeys Around London. And both were written during the Victorian age of technological progression and achievement. And both pieces really give us a really interesting and good glimpse into canals at the height of their working life. Even if, particularly in Hollingshead's account, there is that recognition that this is also reflecting something of the past. He talks about stepping back into the last century. There's an awareness that canals are in some way being left behind and This is a world that is possibly being lost. This week, I want to jump 50 years now into Hollingshead's future and look at a real classic of canal literature. And that is Ernest Temple Thurston's book, The Flower of Gloucester. And in it, a lot of the misgivings and perhaps fears that lie behind some of Hollingshead's comments about the future of the canals is really borne out. And now we're at a time where railways are in the ascension and the whole canals and canal system is in the decline. This creates an environment in which canals can then evoke a sense of nostalgia a sense of the past, albeit most probably an idealised and quite naive understanding of the past and a way of life that was perhaps simpler and kinder and slower and all those things which we miss in the, the frenetic hurly-burly of contemporary life. And Temple Thurston captures all of that in his book. The Flower of Gloucester was printed in 1911 and in it he lyrically and romantically describes his journey on a horse-drawn narrowboat called The Flower of Gloucester from Oxford to Inglesham in the West Country in the early summer of 1910. And this is a world that's very different to the one described in Haskell's tour of the Grand Junction. Quietness becomes a key character in Temple Thurston's account. The peaceful, companionable quietness of nature and life outside the hurly-burly of the city. But also the more brooding, sinister quietness of a landscape That is dying. And whilst it's quite rightly been described as a celebration of the canals and those who worked on the canals, it can also be read as a eulogy for a life and a world that is being lost, and one which Temple Thurston particularly feels we will be the poorer for it being lost. This is as much a requiem for the working canals and the type of life that the communities that worked on the canals reflected and expressed as say Roltz the Narrowboat. And in fact, reading again Roltz the Narrowboat, it strikes me how much of Thurston is in there. And and indeed Rolt acknowledges his debt to Temple Thurston in his writings. And if Rolt bulks a little at Temple Thurston's account as being overly sweet for modern readers, he fairly makes that same criticism of his own book. And whilst it's true that a number of the characters that feature in Temple Thurston's account, and particularly ancient Harry, who almost becomes a caricature of himself, replacing one stereotype of a canal boatman as brutish, foul-mouthed, and dishonest with another stereotype, roughly in the mould of Hollingshead, of this rather unschooled wise man or sage. And it's also true that there are plenty of purple passages sprinkled with wild abandon throughout his book. There's also, I think, a lot of shade here as well as light. And that adds poignancy and depth to the brightly painted scenes that Temple Thurston paints with great skill. And that's not... Again, surprising. Temple Thurston had just got divorced. His ex-wife was to die during the year of publication. He was struggling as a writer and he was a man lost in his own city. And his writings reflect that search and also that restless discontent with the world in which he was thrown into. On page one, Temple Thurston introduces himself as this footloose wanderer without ties, an explorer in a strange land on an adventure that he is acutely aware of many will find ludicrous. And his mission was to hire for a month or two a working boat This is decades before the emergence of leisure cruising. And although it had been done before, it tended to be done by journalists with particular agendas to write. And Hollingshead is is one really clear example of that. And so the opening chapters, the reader shares his discomfort and, and embarrassment about trying to find a boat and find a boatman to take him on what seems to be a completely ridiculous venture. Eventually he does find a boat owner willing to hire out his boat to him and that boat's the Flower of Gloucester with its idiosyncratic spelling of Gloucester, G-L-O-S-T-E-R. And even its name hints at the Cultural divide that Temple Thurston is wanting to explore and perhaps immerse himself in. The hired boatman is a man called Ainsham Harry, and Ainsham Harry takes the place of Captain Randall in Hollingshead's account of his journey on the flyboat Stourport. Ainsham Harry is the sage, the country bumpkin that turns out wiser than the city-based authorities. He is the Socratic figure who is so aware of his lack of learning and, and even knowledge, and by so doing, to Temple Thurston at least, illuminates the sophistry of the world with his wisdom At one point, Temple Thurston concludes one of his rather long and somewhat rambling conversations with ancient Harry with, It comes to this, said I, that you are the true-born philosopher. You learn your philosophy from the hedgerows. I only play at it. Well, sir, said he. I've often sat and looked into a hedge, where all the insects be creeping, and I've said to myself, you be near as ever you be in your life to the greatest secret in the world. But by God, I never found it, sir. I turned away, disheartened with my own shortcomings. There's a lot of quite sharp and sometimes barbed wit in Temple Thurston's writings, and... Ansham Harry is that sharp and perfect foil to not only Temple Thurston's own experience and owned education, but to the scholars and commercial barons of Oxford that Temple Thurston pillories so expertly in the first few chapters of his book. This is possibly a critique on education, on knowledge, on wisdom, on values upon which the Edwardian world, certainly as far as Temple Thurston sees it, is based as it is on the canals. And so the Flower of Gloucester can be read as not just a description or an account of a journey on the canals, but also of a pilgrimage or of a quest for enlightenment with ancient Harry as the the earthy and at times wily sage to Temple Thurston's rather jaundiced novice. The Flower of Gloucester is hauled by the workhorse called Fanny. And we're not really told that much about her, apart from the fact that there appears to be A close relationship between ancient Harry and Fanny. They work together as a team. Well, let's let Temple Thurston take it from here. Chapter 8. The Beginning of the Journey When once your provisions are aboard, your pass is signed and paid for, there remains nothing but to hitch your horse to the tow rope and be off. Here on the canals, there is no tide to hinder any man. At such an hour you start, because at such an hour before nightfall, when all the locks are closed, you need to be in such and such a place. Indeed, it is the life of a gypsy. Your home you carry with you, wheresoever you go. Moreover, there is not one upon the road who may lift his hand to stay you. At a quarter past four that afternoon in May I sat in the stern of the Flower of Gloucester and watched the tow-line tauten, saw the water-drops shake from off the sodden rope that glistened like twisted thread of silver in the sunlight, and felt that first faint movement of the barge as she swung round into her gentle gliding pace. I pushed the tiller over harder starboard and out went her nose into the canal's centre. One by one the ripples gathered and lengthened on the water. And soon we were leaving the towers and the roofs of the old grey town behind us. Some twenty yards ahead, upon the path walked ancient Harry with his horse. The tow-lines sagging, and tautening, sagging and tautening, as she strained or lingered on her way. Once I lifted my head and looked above me, and the sky was just beginning to tinge with primrose. Now, were I in London, said I, my ears would be filled with the shrieks of a thousand motorhorns, and I could scarcely see the sky for the housetops. What is more, I'm going into a new world where never a soul will trouble to tell me the way. And then, as though to make the silence more absolute and complete, a peewit rose and swept in circles around the meadows. Peewit! she cried. Peewit! It is little sounds, thought I, that fill the silences, for silence is a vessel that may be filled or may be broken. Now in London we have nothing save the shattered fragments which have not even a long sleep of winter's night can mend but in the country the song of a lark will fill the pitcher to the brim add but the notes of a thrush and I've known it running over Later on in the day Temple Thurston falls into conversation with ancient Harry and particularly about the, the scenery that they're passing. They're still working through the outskirts of Oxford, where there's a lot of new development and new building, particularly of domestic housing. And Temple Thurston asks ancient Harry whether all of the canal is going to be like this, in which case this is a big mistake. This is not what he thinks canals should be about. As far as Temple Thurston is concerned, canals should be about gliding through the countryside in a serene manner. Is it like this all the way? I cried. He, ancient Harry, left his horse. She stopped at once to nibble by the hedge. Is the canal like this all the way? I asked as he came back along the path. Oh, no, sir, said he. Look here. There's fine country soon as you come past Thrup. And where shall we stop for the night? Well, that's as it likes you, sir. We reach Shipton Church about seven this evening, and there be a good flow of water under, and we shall make Shipton Church about seven. Right away, then, said I, go along as fast as you can, till we get away from these damned red brick villas. By which, you may see, I was mildly endeavouring to live up to the reputation of the bargee, a reputation for strong language, which, so long as I have known him, he has utterly failed to fulfil. I suppose you like the old houses best, said Ainsham Harry, as he moved away. I do, said I. Don't you? Well, sir, he replied. I don't know that has much to do with me anyway. I couldn't stop in a house, look you. I should catch a cold the first night. Tis the same way any of us used to living on boats. I haven't slept out of a boat since I was born. Indeed, I can well understand it. These small cabins on the barges are as snug as they can be. Panel of one wall lets down, meeting across to the other side. And there is your bed as comfortable as that in many a hotel. When swung up again, the cabin is easily capacious enough for two, though often with these families it will accommodate more. In the same fashion as the bed, the door of the cupboard lets down to form a table. At the foot of the cabin steps, with a chimney protruding through the roof, a small stove provides all that is necessary for warmth and cooking. Not an inch of space is wasted. There are cupboards everywhere, for clothes and crockery and everything you need. As I took the tiller again and we swung off once more into the centre of the road, I heard the old clock ticking softly in the cabin below me. At that moment the birds of one accord had ceased their singing, except for the even monotonous stepping of ancient Harry's horse, this was the only sound in all the silence. At Thrupp we came to the first of those drawbridges, which the mere weight of a man will raise to let the barge pass through. At first I thought ancient Harry would never be there in time to swing her up for the barge's passage. But they know to a moment these men, As well indeed they should, How long it takes, Not one instant, Neither too soon, Nor too late. Did he leave the horse's head? With sagging tow lines she walked calmly on, Crossing the bridge after him To the tow-path on the other side. Then, almost as the nose of the flower of Gloucester Passed into the shadow, He caught hold of the big arms, lifted himself off his feet, and up swung the bridge like a feather lifted on the wind. These bridges are characteristic of Oxfordshire. You meet with them in no other country than this. They join as often as not the low-lying meadows which the canal intersects and are mostly set down with their great arms stretching upward to admit of the access of cattle from one field to another. Immediately, after passing that at Thrupp, where there is a little cluster of old Oxfordshire cottages and a farm, the canal takes a sudden, almost rectangular turn. And here it leads in a straight reach down to the church of Shipton Village, Which stands upon the River Cherwell. In reality, the canal is nearer to the village than the river, but in the days when Shipton on Cherwell received its name, they knew of no canal, nor dreamed of its existence. And it was here, in the long rushes that grow under the broad elm trees, that we moored the Flower of Gloucester, and Ainsham Harry took the horse over the bridge, up into the village, to find her stabling for the night. The next day, Temple Thurston sets the rhythm of journeying on the canals and gives a little glimpse into the life of a working canal in the 1910s. All that day we wound through the meadows. The cattle came down to the water's edge to look at us as we passed. They are shy, curious things, young heifers. The world is very new to them. In their soft eyes is all the patient wonder of the child. So near did we pass them at times that, had I swung the tiller round, I might have touched their noses with my hand. So the day slips, just as the meadows pass, in that silent, gliding way. Whereby it is gone before you have thought to count an hour of it, only now and again the pleasant monotony of it is broken by the commotion of a passing barge. Then there is the cracking of whips and the raising of voices, the soft scraping purr as the boat runs by you, touching your side. Scraps of conversation are exchanged ere they shoot out of distance, and turning some sudden corner are lost, out of sight. For a long while before, you may often hear them coming. Where there is none to lead the horse, a man will sit at the tiller with his whip, cracking it ever and again, as the gentle beast lingers to nibble from the hedge. Nearer grows the sound and nearer, until the smoking funnel from the cabin fire can just be seen above the hedgerows. Then, round she swings into sight, a fellow's Morton with a load of straw, a pair of Faulkners with cargoes of best bright, or a Shropshire Union with her odorous merchandise of gas water. Sometimes, perhaps, it's a flyboat, out of Birmingham, travelling her steady three miles an hour, day and night like the old express coaches of a time that few of us are now left to remember. One and all they know each other's journeys, as sailors will tell you in mid-ocean the destination of some passing vessel. As ships, too, they will hail each other in the passing, while the tow-lines swing across. Good morning, Joseph. Good morning, Harry. If you see Sam in Oxford... Tell her I've got that there horse for whenever he wants to see her. And then, no doubt, may follow little scraps of canal gossip in voices rising as the distance increases between them. For never do they loiter. Time is a precious matter with them, and with them also necessity is their chronometer. They are like the wagtails. I've often envied them the hours they spend a working. I can think of no better way of ending this episode looking at Temple Thurston by reading his short description of his first night aboard the Flower of Gloucester. For some hours that night I lay awake listening to the great silence. No doubt it was the first strangeness of that bed in the cabin of the Flower of Gloucester which kept me from sleeping. But it was a rest to lie there nonetheless. Through the open doorway of the cabin The stars were glittering in a deep blue sky And now and then a bird chirped sleepily As its mate pressed close against it on the branch. A man might do worse, thought I Than spend his life like this But when I began to consider how it might be done, I fell asleep. This is the Narrowboat signing off for the night, and wishing you a very peaceful, restful night. Good night.